When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome one, welcome all to the court of the Trashy Royals, where we assemble each Thursday to reveal and revel in the tales of our betters behaving badly. My name is Stacy. Alicia here. Thanks for joining us today. We have quite a few naughty nobles in our story. It's a lot of story through time. Now presenting the Grimaldis, the ruling family of Monaco for many and many a century now. So trashy. We have certainly spent our time in Great Britain. Today, we're going to travel a little further southward over to Monaco, the second smallest sovereign state on Earth right after Vatican City. 0.78 square miles, just right there on the Mediterranean. Tiny place, big impact. Indeed. We have weddings and divorces and curses and scandals and so many spiderwebs. And for real, a tribute to Scorpios too. We did just pass November 12th, the birthday of the beloved Princess Grace of Monaco, who crosses in so many threads in our trashy universe. But the very best thing this Leo has ever heard about is Princess Grace's all-Scorpio birthday party, which is actually the conclusion of this story, but there's so much to cover before we make it to 1969. What an alternative journey we have in store today. Before we begin, we must extend thanks to a few good nobles out there supporting our trashy journey with ad-free and early episodes over at patreon.com slash trashyroyalspodcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan and Lori M. Big thanks to all of you for supporting our endeavors. Find your hats, pack your bags, gear up for warmer climates, and a really trashy side journey. Let us anon to Monaco to meet the Grimaldis, their curses, their sovereigns, their scandals and spiderwebs, and fabulous parties too. it's only appropriate to begin with just a general overview. How do we get to the Grimaldi family anyway? It is on January 8th, 1297, that (laughs) Francois Grimaldi, whose nickname is The Spiteful. Mm. Mm -hmm. Frankie the Spiteful, okay. Frankie the Spiteful disguises himself as a Franciscan monk and knocks on the gate of his uncle Rainier's castle. Once allowed entry, Frankie the Spiteful pulled out his sword from his friar's robes and called for his soldiers who had been waiting for him on the cliffs of the fortress. Together, Frankie the Spiteful and his troops take over Monaco. Successfully, but not successfully for long. Four years later, Frankie's out. He's got to flee. Don't worry, though. His cousin, Charles Grimaldi, Chucky, he's the son of the previous Prince Rainier. Charles Grimaldi takes back control, and over the next several decades, the Grimaldi family and their rule of Monaco were hotly contested and fought over. Nothing's going great. Is this just intra-Grimaldi warfare? Correct, yeah. See, the thing is, Monaco's geography and location makes it an ideal fortress, as well as lookout in times of war. I mean, it's beautiful, and there's a lot of money there, and so it kind of becomes an ideal sanctuary and respite for all manner of unpleasantness in the world. Its natural beauty, inherent glamour, makes it a desirable destination for anybody who can afford to visit. I mean, it's on the Mediterranean. For a variety of changing reasons in the centuries and centuries that follow, Monaco would remain an alluring hideaway for the powerful, the wealthy, the famous, For over 700 years now, the Grimaldi family 
has ruled the very small but remarkable principality and has also been at the center of scandal, intrigue, and glamour just right there on the French Riviera. Again, area of 0.78 square miles. Monaco, to give you an idea, is 60% of the size of Central Park in New York City. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, tiny. Tiny. Its population is right under 40,000, making it one of the most densely populated countries in the world. Also good to note, nearly a third of that 40,000 almost people, millionaires. High capita. Yeah. Tiny town, big deal. In any place that has been building a family legend with people who started it like Frankie the Spiteful, you know there has to be a curse involved. So did they loot some sarcophagi in Egypt or something? Well, it does go back to Frankie the Spiteful. Hmm. So during and after his battle for Monaco, Frankie Francois Grimaldi killed a lot of people. Several by burning them at the stake. That was one of his preferred methods. Spiteful. The infamous Grimaldi curse stems from Francois's violence. There are two main theories or myths. Sure. Stories. Stories uh, that surround the supposed Grimaldi curse. Here's number one. First up, Francois Grimaldi ordered his beloved to be burned at the stake during his short reign of terror for some inconsequential offense. While burning at the stake, Francois's beloved declared, never will a Grimaldi find true happiness in marriage. That's the first idea. Sure. It's a good story. The second story Mm -hmm. of origin of the Grimaldi curse. I guess we don't have video. No video, unfortunately. But again, Francois... This time, Francois kidnaps and rapes a beautiful maiden. Hmm. The maiden then, I like this actual plot twist better, the maiden then becomes a witch in order to get revenge, and once able to witchery, cast spells and such, the beautiful witch declared, never will a Grimaldi find true happiness in marriage. It feels like whatever way it shook down, the curse was, never will a Grimaldi find true happiness in marriage. And if, if you're going to curse a family, that's a pretty good curse. Well, anyway, you cut that cake. It seems to be a curse that was in play and still is in play. Many generations fall peril to the curse's power. It has been tripping up the Grimaldis since the 13th century. Thanks, Frankie. You would think that, you know prospective mates would be like, yeah, but you got this curse. Who's spiteful now? Okay, to be fair, obviously, many do not believe these stories are in the curse at all, but there is no denying that the Grimaldi family has experienced a great deal of unhappiness, scandal, and tragedy within their marriages. We see this all through the past. Again, current Grimaldi family members, no exception. Today, we're making it from here to Princess Grace and a tribute to her and Scorpios. We will get to all of those trashy Monaco royals, trust me. But I'm going to skip forward in time. Today, we're going to Albert I. Albert I, kind of interesting, Prince Albert, he rules Monaco in the same timeline as Queen Victoria, Bertie, Edward VII, and George II with so many spiderwebs. So end of 19th century, start of 20th century. Correct. Prince Albert I rules Monaco from 1889 to 1922. So what's that? 33 years? Groovy. Policies, diplomacy, whatever. That's not what we're here for. The trashy here with Albert I is in his romances, The Curse and The Connections. Let's set this into perspective. Prince Albert I is the great-grandfather of Prince Rainier III and is the great-great-grandfather of the current monarch, Prince Albert II, as well as his sisters, Caroline and Stephanie. Prince Albert I of Monaco was married twice and unhappy in both marriages. Some curses can last a lifetime. First up in the love department for Albert I. 
20 years before he assumes the throne. So go back to 1869. Prince Al married Lady Mary Victoria Douglas Hamilton. Lady Mary Victoria was the daughter of the 11th Duke of Hamilton and Princess Marie of Baden. Lady Mary Victoria and Prince Albert meet at a gala thrown by Napoleon III and his wife, Empress Eugenie. The couple's only child, Louis, was born less than a year later. Now, Lady Mary Victoria is Scottish, and mostly because of that, being Scottish, she really does not enjoy Monaco or the Mediterranean climate. Is it the nice weather? Is that what does it in for the poor Scottish lass? I don't know. So when Prince Albert leaves to fight in the Franco-Prussian War, Lady Mary Victoria's out. She's like, see ya, Monaco. I'm going back to the land of Pete, Haggis, and Whiskey. I need clouds. Out. (laughs) Give me my beautiful hills, right? Lady Mary Victoria never comes back. Oh, God. (laughs) The marriage was annulled by the church in January of 1880. Ah, the allure of Scotland. (laughs) The marriage in fact, was not civilly dissolved until about seven months after that, not until July of 1880. Hmm. But let me tell you about Lady Mary Victoria. This is amazing. The newly single Princess of Monaco, now that she's annulled, is more than ready to mingle. In fact, before that civil divorce even happened in July of 1880, Lady Mary Victoria got remarried in June of 1880. To a Hungarian nobleman, this is Prince Tassilo Festetics, von Tolna, and I'm certain that's correct. That is obviously how it's pronounced. (laughs) The couple have four children together. A little bigamist marriage there at the start. Now, here's the thing I need to tell you about the Hungarian husband, because it is at her new Hungarian palace that Princess Mary often entertains her brother, the 12th Duke of Hamilton, and his close friend, Bertie, the Prince of Wales. Hmm. Prior to the match between Albert and Mary Victoria, are you ready for this? Empress Eugenie had tried to arrange a marriage between Albert and Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge. Queen Victoria would not allow this marriage of a close relative, because why? The scandalous Grimaldi gambling family. Queen Vix, you had so much to say about everything, but those Grimaldis are a step too far. (laughs) Now, maybe it's lucky that this marriage didn't happen between Albert and Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge. Why? Because Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge, (laughs) she was called Fat Mary, She's the first cousin to Queen Victoria. Fat Mary goes on to marry the Duke of Teck. Their oldest child was Mary of Teck, who marries King George V, and they have five children together, the oldest of their children being King Edward VIII, later the Duke of Windsor, and King George VI, the father of Queen Elizabeth II. It all comes back around. Always does. Everything is connected. Always does. If Prince Albert I of Monaco had married Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge, the royal landscape in England would look far different. And we would not have many of the trashy divorces and affairs that we appreciate so much in our hearts. We would just have different ones. Totally different ones. It's kind of impossible to think about the sliding doors of that. Let's roll on back to Prince Albert I of Monaco, because it is in October 1889. He will try his hand at marriage for the second time. Curse be darned. This time, Prince Albert is going to marry an American heiress, as well as the Dowager Duchess of Richelieu, Alice Heine. Oh, Alice, she was born in 1858 to a wealthy American family of French descent down in New Orleans, Louisiana. Hmm. Tough time to be born in New Orleans. Kind of, 1858, as when the American Civil War breaks out, the family will flee to France. 
Alice's family, we've seen this before with our heiresses. Alice's family were favorites in the court of Napoleon III and Empress Eugenie. So much, in fact, that Napoleon III and Eugenie become godparents to Alice. She has a privileged and charmed upbringing. At the tender age of 17, Alice, this is in February 1875, marries her first husband, Armand Chapelle de Jumilac, the seventh Duke of Richelieu. The couple have two children, a son in 1875 and a daughter in 1879. Sadly, this marriage was cut short when the seventh Duke of Richelieu died in 1880, leaving Alice a very wealthy widow at the tender young age of 22. Yikes. Alice and Prince Albert I marry in October 1889, and it is Alice Heine that becomes the first American princess of Monaco. But not the last. Not the last. Alice helpfully brings with her a large dowry and quite an impressive collection of jewels. Albert, grateful, I guess, but he spends a lot of his time pursuing interests in oceanography, not necessarily with his wife. Alice has some other things to do in Monaco. I mean, she's kind of a French girl after all. She's into class and culture. She's very involved in making Monaco known for its, she's trying to build kind of a court, right? What about its ballet and opera? The program she developed, the class and culture which Alice put in play, still thriving today in Monaco. Sort of trying to recreate Paris there on the Mediterranean. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Let's make this a glamorous place with all the best in arts. Alice, oh, bless her, ends up falling in love. Not necessarily with her husband. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, Alice falls in love with singer and composer Isidore Delara. Now, unfortunately, Albert finds out about his wife's infidelity. And Albert doesn't just get mad at Alice. Albert gets mad at Alice in front of a full house at the Monte Carlo Opera and slaps Alice in front of all of Monaco. Yeah, I'm seeing the curse playing out here. Alice is not happy. Mm. Alice packs her bags and leaves Monaco the next day. And Albert is like, what are you doing leaving Monaco? So Albert forbids Alice to ever come back to Monaco. Petty. (laughs) Alice and Albert were legally separated in 1902, but never divorced. So they had like a three, four year long marriage for intents and purposes and then just they were just married they married in 1889 so they lasted a little longer she made 89 yeah alice made good and sure to really get involved with isidore he wrote a bunch of operas for her about her that story's pretty scandalous but that's not the only scandalous part of this story so alice is like hey petty crocker i'm out of here albert she moves to london where Alice is taken in by high society and royal circles. And guess who Alice becomes BFFs with? Is it Jenny Jerome Churchill? No, Queen Alexandra, the wife of Bertie, King Edward VII. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good, too. Alice moving in high places. The queen. Yeah, that's good. It's not bad. I mean, Jenny Jerome is a queen, but everybody knows everybody. So while Prince Albert... The first did have the nerve to slap his wife for being unfaithful to him. I want to let you know that Prince Albert had been having a long-term affair with a very famous courtesan, the most famous courtesan of the era. Caroline Otero is her name, La Belle Otero. Otero was beautiful, Spanish. She's an actress, a dancer, and a high-class sex worker. But just want to let you know that Prince Albert I of Monaco was not the only admirer of La Belle Otero. La Belle Otero has numerous royal and aristocratic lovers. You ready for this list? All of our favorites. We've met them all. Kaiser Wilhelm II, Edward VII, Bertie, the King of Serbia, Russian Grand Duke Peter, Tsar Nicholas II, (laughs) and the 
kings, plural, of Spain. Okay. Her popularity among the powerful men of Europe during her day meant that La Bella Terra was unliked by many of the women of her day. She was quite the heartbreaker. Six men reportedly committed suicide after she broke off the relationship with them. There was also at least one verified duel fought over Caroline. Otero, just to let you know, she was very successful at trading sex for power and wealth. La Bella Terro amassed an enormous fortune thought to be over $20 million and lived in a very lavish lifestyle. Later in her life, she would pen her memoirs to the dismay of many, many of her lovers and many, many of their wives. In her memoir, she spoke fondly of Prince Albert I, but did in fact say he was not a virile man and had erectile difficulty, quote-unquote. A bit scandalous, those memoirs. Now is a fantastic time. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to move into Prince Rainier III. Back in a second. All right, friends. Now entering Prince Rainier III. He was born May the 31st, 1923, in the palace in Monaco. Prince Rainier is the second child of Prince Pierre and Princess Charlotte. His older sister, Princess Antoinette, was born in 1920. Now, I need to let you know that Prince Rainier's path to the Grimaldi throne is atypical, very unusual. Rainier's mother, Charlotte, was the illegitimate daughter of Prince Louis II of Monaco. This is the son of Albert I and Lady Mary Victoria. Remember, they had one son a year after they got married. Prince Louis II of Monaco has a divorced cabaret singer lover. Her name is Marie-Juliette Louvet. Prince Louis met Louvet when she was a hostess at a nightclub in Montmartre. Normally, an illegitimate child, especially one born to a divorced mother of lowly birth, just simply wouldn't be recognized. Not only that, that child would never be put in the line of succession, but Prince Louis II had no other kids. What can you do? Fearing that if something didn't change, you ready? His cousin, Wilhelm, the Duke of Uroch, would inherit the throne of Monaco, Prince Louis and his father, the reigning Prince Albert I, are like, we got to do something. Right. It's time to act, y'all. So, in 1911, are you ready? Prince Albert passes a law that would recognize his out-of-wedlock daughter. So, just legitimizing? That was not the quick fix that Louis and Albert had hoped for, because it was found to be invalid, this law, under the statutes of 1882. But when you're the monarch, you can just make a new law which is exactly what Prince Albert I did. So in 1918, Albert passes a law that allows for an adopted child to succeed. So Louis II formally and legally adopted his illegitimate daughter, Charlotte, making her Princess Charlotte Louise Juliette Grimaldi, Duchess of Valentinois. That's probably how that's said. That's closer than most of the other things I've done in this episode. So... In 1922, Prince Albert dies, and his throne goes to Prince Louis II. Princess Charlotte was now married with a daughter and had just become the next in line to the Monegasque throne. Prince Rainier was born the following year. In 1944, Princess Charlotte ceded her rights to the secession of her son. When Rainier's grandfather, Prince Louis II, died in 1949, Prince Rainier III becomes the reigning monarch of Monaco. And just a quick note, the reason why these are all princes of Monaco and not kings of Monaco is because France, which is a much larger power, has some doings in the government of Monaco. I think for a long time, the prime ministers had to be French citizens. Yeah, I think so. Monaco has princes because France has a king. Or had been that way for a long time. Yeah. I don't see it changing. (laughs) Here we go to young Prince Rainier, who's really the king of Monaco, but there is no king of Monaco. There's no king of Monaco. Just a prince. Prince Rainier, bless his heart, 
good Lord, this story. He was educated at elite boarding schools in England, where he was called, his nickname, Fat Monaco. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. A lot of... A lot of slagging on these folks. There's a lot of fat shaming in uh, <sighs> this story. This story. After this, Rainier moved to the world's most expensive boarding school. We see this a lot. One of the oldest boarding schools in Switzerland. This is the Institut Les Roses. For college, Rainier attended the French University at Montpelier and then the Institut d'Etudes Politiques in Paris to groom him for his future role of monarch. Should have had a croissant this morning. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was yeah, going right? to be doing this much French today. In World War II, Rainier enlisted in the French army. He was cited for bravery and offered the rank of colonel. In his personal life, which is what we're here for, Prince Rainier had been in a long-term live-in relationship with a French film actress. Her name was Giselle Pascal. The couple lived together at Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat in France. They intended to marry. But remember, Rainier has a sister, Princess Antoinette. And Princess Antoinette has another plan. Princess Antoinette would like the throne for her son, not her brother. So Princess Antoinette starts to spread some rumors that Giselle Pascal was low-born and barren. Now, we've seen these. Mm -hmm. Let's examine women's bodily private parts before within the royal milieu. Doctors will examine Giselle and deem her to be infertile. Prince Rainier understood the importance of having an heir in order to be able to secure the line of succession, but he's still unwilling to end his relationship with Pascal. The relationship was strained now due to constant rumors and increasing pressure for Rainier to marry and produce an heir. And here's the evening of heartbreak. It is at an event at the Cannes Film Festival that Giselle and Rainier attend. Giselle will dance in an intimate fashion with the actor Gary Cooper. Uh, Did Rainier slap her in front of everyone? No, but later in his authorized biography, Rainier said that seeing the two of them together was, quote, like a knife going through my heart, unquote. Ironically, Giselle Pascal will later marry a fellow French actor and have a daughter. Hmm. So obviously the doctors were wrong. Sure. Or, or. Paid off. There was an arrangement made between the examining doctors and Princess Antoinette. Antoinette. To malign Giselle. But it was too late to make any difference for Rainier. Rainier, though, does have some things to do, right? First up, make Monaco fabulous again. So Rainier's grandfather, Louis II, died. And when that happens, Louis leaves basically an empty treasury. There's no money. Rainier is charged with building back Monaco's prestige, its image, as well as its finances. Monaco had long been a gambling destination for the wealthy of Europe. However, after World War II, things are just different. The growing middle classes will find cheaper and more casual gambling spots. The titled are not necessarily wealthy anymore. Wealth has sort of transferred Monaco's appeal waned a bit, and therefore its revenue had been damaged. War does that to a country. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that World War II changed everything, especially for Europe, but everything. Very much. Prince Rainier decides he needs to take some drastic measures to restore the wealth and image of Monaco. First up, Rainier promotes Monaco as a tax haven for the rich and famous. Turns out that worked like a charm. This tax haven idea boosts tourism and attracts a tremendous amount of real estate development. Rainier has another secret weapon, Greek shipping tycoon Aristotle Onassis. Hmm. Onassis invests heavily in Monaco and the partner company that runs the casino. 
Onassis takes control of this organization. This is called the Societe de Bonne de Mer de Monaco. It goes by SBM. This is the company that technically runs the Monte Carlo Casino for the Grimaldi family because they can't run it, so the SBM is kind of an intermediary. Onassis, we've seen his type before. He's keeping his eye on the prize and looking for ways to boost tourism and interest in Monaco. So Aristotle suggests to his friend Rainier that he, you know, has got a solution. Just marry an American film star. (laughs) I mean, not the worst idea. Aristotle Onassis has access to many Hollywood starlets. He entertains them frequently on his yacht. So Aristotle calls up his good friend Greta Garbo and her manager to help Aristotle find a good American wife for Rainier. The search is on and the stars on the list of potentials. Anybody invited offered rent-free accommodation in Monte Carlo. Come hang out. See if you like Mm -hmm. the prince. Sure. Hey, it beats sending Hans Holbein out to... uh... Do an early tender profile pick selection. Ain't that the truth. Okay, guess who's at the top of the list? Mirrorball herself, Marilyn Monroe. Mm. Marilyn Monroe considered the idea for a while and will tell Aristotle Onassis, give me two days alone with him and of course he'll want to marry me. Marilyn will consider the idea for about a week. This is my favorite little tidbit and how actually I remember to pronounce Rainier's name. Marilyn referred to her possible future husband as Prince Reindeer. Prince Rainier, Prince Reindeer. Like, sure. It's a good way to remember how you say that. Sure. This is according to Liz Smith, the Prince Reindeer thing. Good mnemonic there. Ultimately, Marilyn Monroe did decide against this plan, as well as Rainier's advisors felt that maybe Marilyn Monroe wasn't dignified enough to mm. fit the bill for next American princess of Monaco. But the one thing everybody did agree on was this plan was fantastic. A glamorous Hollywood star would do wonders for Monaco. I'm guessing Elizabeth Taylor was in the running for this too. How did you even know that was my next I sentence? just, I, th- I don't feel like you could be contemplating marrying an American actress in this era without reaching out to Elizabeth Taylor, one of the most beautiful people ever to live she of the violet eyes Mm -hmm. yes you are entirely correct prince rainier allegedly began an affair with elizabeth taylor that lasted for many years the affair is said to have begun in 1950 when elizabeth was on her honeymoon in monte carlo with her first husband conrad hilton that went badly conrad hilton was abusive to taylor from the beginning of their marriage While he was gambling away on their honeymoon. The prince was entertaining his new wife. Yeah, well, Elizabeth accepted two dinner invitations from other men. The first one of those men was Aristotle Onassis on his yacht. The second dinner invitation was from Prince Rainier. So Arionassis is all into this. He attempts to convince Elizabeth Taylor to divorce Hilton. Prince Rainier in his dinner made certain that Elizabeth was aware that he was looking for a famous, preferably Hollywood wife who could go on to produce an heir. I do love these spider webs. So trashy. It seems that there was not ever really a strong prospect of marriage between Elizabeth and Rainier, but their love affair apparently is on and off for the next three decades. Oh, wow. It's certainly inconvenient that they met while she was on her honeymoon. It does put a kink in sure. the in the plan. So now let's enter Grace Kelly. We all know how this story ends. Grace Kelly was asked to take part in a photo shoot with the prince while at the Cannes Film Festival. Rainier and Grace Kelly meet shortly after. They fall in love. They get married. They have three kids. Huh. Before the marriage could take place, though, Grace Kelly had to pass a fertility test and her parents were required to pay a dowry of $2 million. Although Grace's parents were wealthy enough to afford the dowry, 
Grace's father was reportedly a little bit shocked by the demand. When he considered not paying it, apparently Grace herself offered to pay half. Okay, so Grace was very into, like, this may not just have been an arranged thing. The two of them may actually have gotten on well. Well, let's get into it, because there's a lot that happened before Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier meet. While Grace Kelly did appear to be the dignified, elegant, and very pure American movie star, at least her image was much less overtly sexual than Marilyn Monroe, say, Grace Kelly had her own trashy past that she covered up very well under that ice princess exterior. At the time, Grace Kelly's trashy side was a very well-kept secret, but most of Hollywood knew of her sexual conquests, but few Americans outside of Hollywood would even believe the number of men she slept with. Some of her lovers include Clark Gable, David Niven, Gary Cooper, William Holden, Ray Milland, Oleg Cassini, Pierre Gallant, Bing Crosby, and John F. Kennedy Jr. LaBelle Kelly. (laughs) Gary Cooper said about Grace Kelly, she looked like a cold dish with a man until you got her pants down and then she'd explode. Wow. Wow. All right. When JFK was recovering from back surgery in 1954, his wife Jacqueline enlisted Grace Kelly to help cheer up her husband. Jacqueline asked Grace to visit JFK in the hospital dressed up like a nurse. At the time, Jacqueline was completely unaware that Jack and Grace had had a previous relationship. Oh, wow. Uh huh. According to a gossip columnist, What Grace Kelly did to cheer Kennedy up makes Marilyn Monroe's happy birthday rendition of 62 seem PG. Well, it's the thought that counts. I don't know. Trashy Candy Stripers. Journalist and author James Spada, who spent three years researching Grace Kelly for his biography, Grace, The Secret Lives of a Princess, said there were two revelations that absolutely astonished him about Princess Grace during his research. The first, Spada says, was how the most sexually active woman in Hollywood was able to come across as the most chaste. The second was that Prince Rainier actually believed that she was a virgin. Even with the doctors checking her out for fertility purposes? I mean, how bad do you want it? Maybe you let it slide. Spada quoted a Mrs. Henry Hathaway. This is the widow of Grace's first movie director. As <laughs> She complained, quote, I have nothing good to say about Grace. She had an affair with my best friend's husband, Ray Milland, and all the time wearing those white gloves. He asked her with whom else in Hollywood she may have had affairs. And she said she replied, you name it, everybody. <laughs> Spada included this particular anecdote of David Niven thinking fast on his feet regarding his affair with Grace Kelly. Grace had a very brief and very discreet affair with David Niven, one which never reached the point of press speculation. Grace and Niven became close and lifelong friends, and he and his wife frequently visited the palace in Monaco once Grace became a princess. On one occasion, Prince Rainier asked David Niven, who among his reputedly large number of Hollywood conquests had been the most satisfying? Unhesitatingly, Niven replied, Grace. Seeing the prince's shocked expression, Niven added the unlikely clarifier, er, Gracie, Gracie Fields. Oops. (laughs) The fact that Kelly was seen as wholesome by the general public despite her apparently busy private life was something other Hollywood actresses frequently commented upon. Silent film star Clara Bow said, Grace Kelly will get away with having many lovers. Know why? The damn public will never believe it. Zsa Zsa Gabor, TD alum all-star, said of Grace Kelly, she had more boyfriends in a month than I had in a lifetime. She went to bed with anyone she fancied at the time. Despite all of this, before her wedding to Prince Rainier, Grace Kelly pretended to be a virgin, claiming that she broke her hymen 
playing field hockey in high school. It's always field hockey or horseback riding. We will never know if Rainier believed her or not, but as we know, the couple married in 1956 in the wedding of the century. And friends, it was a fairy tale. April 19th, 1956, 30 million viewers around the world watched it all. Wow. It was the wedding of the century, at least in that time. Back in the early 1980s, we got to a little over 28 million for Charles and Diana, 3.65 million for Charles and Camilla. Is that even broadcast? It was broadcast, yes. Okay. But not as watched yeah. as the first one. Let's see, 23 million for William and Catherine, a respectable 14.8 for Edward and Sophie, over 29 million for Harry and Meghan. That has been the next closest number we've seen to Rainier and Grace. So it is Grace Rainier. They meet at the Cannes Film Festival in 1955, and they have a year-long romance. The couple makes things official in a lavish ceremony that puts literally any other royal wedding ceremony to shame. With her family, her bridesmaids, and about 80 pieces of luggage in tow, Grace Kelly set forth for the French Riviera, aboard the ocean liner SS Constitution. When the future Princess of Monaco arrives, she was greeted by 20,000 Monegasque citizens. There's only 23,000 citizens at this point in the country. So basically everyone Everybody out. comes out, all of her loyal subjects. For the next two weeks, preparations are made for the legit OG wedding of the century. Reporters and fans descend upon the tiny principality with such fervor for the week-long celebration that Prince Rainier was forced to call in the French riot police. I'm just a prince. I need some help, France. It is France's job to supply defense umbrella <laughs> stuff to Monaco, so... I think that probably is the reason for the King Prince thing. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere in the back of my brain. Mm -hmm. Anyway, had to call out the riot police for the wedding. There were two ceremonies between Rainier and Grace. First, a civil ceremony happening April 18th. Then the royal wedding the day after. Are you telling me they went to a justice of the peace first? Correct. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, they got married the day before, spent the night together, and then the next day, April 19th, was the big deal wedding, where Grace Kelly of Philadelphia officially becomes Her Serene Highness Princess Grace of Monaco, doing so in a spectacular fashion in Monaco's St. Nicholas Cathedral, which was filled to the brim with white lilacs and lilies of the valley. Beautiful. Oh, Grace was beautiful in a high-necked, long-sleeved dress with a long billowing skirt and a ten-and-a-half-foot-long train. This dress was designed by Helen Rose, who previously designed Elizabeth Taylor's first wedding gown when she married Conrad, Nikki Hilton, husband number one. Helen Rose also designed Elizabeth Taylor's trend-setting dress in Father of the Bride. Grace's dress was made from 125-year-old Brussels lace, taffeta, and thousands of hand-sewn pearls. This dress takes six weeks and 30 seamstresses to assemble and is now owned by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, donated by the Serene Highness herself. Mm -hmm. Oscar de la Renta famously said of Grace Kelly's wedding day look. On her wedding day, Grace Kelly gave new meaning to the word icon. Her whole look, from the regal veil to the feminine lace details and the conservative gown, made her an ageless bride. Grace Kelly paired the spectacular dress with shoes from David Evans with a copper penny tucked into the right shoe for good luck. She's heard about the curse. <laughs> the bridesmaids wore yellow silk gowns designed by Joseph Hong of Neiman Marcus and Priscilla Kidder of Priscilla of Boston fame. The groom, who in Monegasque tradition made his entrance after the bride, wore a military uniform that he designed himself. After a nervous grace, 
and Rainier exchanged rings, the couple said their vows with Grace Kelly whispering, We, oui, when asked if she took the prince as her husband. Oh, what a fairy tale. Like so many brides before her, we have and will meet in our trashy royal's journey. Grace Kelly crosses the sea to marry a stranger, practically. She is 26 and leaving everything behind her she's ever known to become a real-life princess. And, of course, the world falls in love with this fairy tale. The ceremony at Monaco's St. Nicholas Cathedral was a big deal among the 700 guests who watched as wedding history was being made were such heavyweights as Cary Grant, Gloria Swanson, Ava Gardner, Aristotle Onassis, and... Conrad Hilton. All the guests dined on caviar, lobster, champagne, and a 200-pound six-tier wedding cake. This cake was a gift to the newlyweds from pastry chefs at Monte Carlo's Hotel de Paris. It's really over the top. As they cut the cake, there's a pair of live turtle doves freed from the cake as he puts his sword through the Delicious confection. I'm glad you added dove to the end of that because I was like, why are there turtles in no, a cake? No, like turtle doves. Okay. Turtle doves. Birds. birds. Yes, birds fly from the cake. Prince Albert, Princess Grace's son, will tell People Magazine about this day. Mom said it was overwhelming. That excited or the word overjoyed wasn't strong enough to express her feelings. My father said so too. As a gift from the people of Monaco, the newlyweds received a Rolls-Royce convertible, which they use as their mode of transport while parading around the streets of Monte Carlo. The newly minted princess, now with her 142 official new titles and her prince, sailed off into the sunset on a gift from Aristotle Onassis for their seven-week cruise floating around the Mediterranean this yacht was a 170-foot number named the Dio Juvante II. A yacht, I guess, as a wedding gift is nice. Seven-week honeymoon in the Mediterranean? That's a good start. Presumably, Monaco doesn't require that much governing, so... <laughs> oh, as the story continues, there are a lot of stories, a lot of spiderwebs that come from this one. But alas, now I want to get to the entire reason I wanted to bring this episode into Trashy Royals right now. Princess Grace, Her Serene Highness, one of those other titles that she will don for herself is High Scorpia. This is in 1969 when Princess Grace throws herself and her friends, but only her Scorpio friends, a birthday party that can't be beat. Let's take a break and come back to my little love letter to Princess Grace and Scorpios and a famous jewel as well. Perfect. Back in a minute. Oh, this is just one of my favorite stories of all time. Stacy, you know me. My mm -hmm. Leo self likes the thing, the big thing. Scorpios are the big thing. I've gone really hard at Scorpios in the <sighs> earlier days of my astrological voyage. Sure. For long-time listeners, that'll make sense. But this little bit that follows is about Princess Grace, but also a little love letter to Scorpios. Such a good sign. Princess Grace, Dominic Dunn. You want a friend, maybe even a best friend, that's a Scorpio. They're good friends to know. They're a great friend to have. I like that you're doing penance for early trashy divorces, Scorpio disparagement. Bit, yeah, now mm -hmm. I was really hard on Scorpios, so I'm going to take this moment to do some huge thanks to a Scorpio in my life mm -hmm. and yours mm -hmm. and all of yours too, listeners, mm -hmm. are contributing in very essential writer over here within the trashy universe, Melissa O. You are the queen of our hearts. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. I am sending you the love. I'm sending all the Scorpios out there, past and present, in my life and in yours, all the love. Hail, hi, Scorpio. <laughs> Princess Grace is very into astrology. Even before her days in Monaco, she will use a well-known astrologer at the time. His name is Carol Ryder. He's a columnist. He does a horoscope column. Huge in the 50s. He worked with Grace even back in the mid-1950s when she gets engaged to Rainier. 
writer writes her profile up for the wedding to Albert. Princess Grace is one of his most famous celebrity clients. She will be until his death in 1988. Princess Grace, born November 12th. She's a Scorpio sun. Her natal chart does have her with a Pisces moon and a Scorpio rising as well. So she's a double Scorpio? You got it. Okay. Her sun is a Scorpio and her rising is a Scorpio, which means she actually acts like a Scorpio. It's a big sign. And I need to tell you that Grace Kelly does a thing in 1969, 13 years after the amazing wedding of the century. I'd rather be at this party. Princess Grace is going to host a birthday party for 40. Big 4-0. Grace will say this is the last birthday she'll admit to. (laughs) (laughs) And she's going to go all out. So Princess Grace reaches out to her American astrologer friend, columnist Carol Ryder. He lives in California, but lately, old Carol Ryder has been organizing monthly Zodiac parties. That you're only invited to that party if you are that sign. And Princess Grace is like, wow, I have never heard of a more incredible idea. I'm going to give my 40th birthday party for me, a Scorpio, and all of my Hollywood friends that are also Scorpios. Only Scorpios will be invited to my party. It's a pretty exclusive guest list. (laughs) How do you get an invite? You won't unless you're a Scorpio. Grace is throwing this party for herself and her Scorpio friends, but there's a little adjacent thing here. You may be able to get on the list if you're married to a Scorpio, which will cause a little bit of a scandal at this party. So who makes it to the list? Sure. Rock Hudson. He's Hmm. a Scorpio. Famous friend of Grace's. David Niven will be at the party as well, but not because David Niven is a Scorpio. His wife is a Scorpio. Okay, so he's a plus one. David Niven is a plus one, yes. Famous Welsh actor Richard Burton Mm, is also a Scorpio. Has a famous plus one as well. Yeah, his famous plus one is not a Scorpio. She is a Pisces. His famous Pisces wife, Elizabeth Taylor. So the invitations do come out. They bear the inscription, Hi, Scorpia. That is what Grace is calling herself. That is her Princess Grace alternate nickname. Sure. Hi, Scorpia. The invitations are sent only to Scorpios and their plus ones. The guests are asked to dress in the colors of Scorpio, predominantly red, but also black and white. Gentlemen are to wear jackets. Other Zodiac signs will not be tolerated. I'm just kidding. Grace's family's there, too. It's sure. not like she's unreasonable. <laughs> I do have a funny little thing here. In Princess Grace's opinion, there were two signs that could never be in harmony. This is her hard, fast rule. You want to guess what those two signs are? Scorpios and Geminis Oh, interesting. are never going to be in harmony. You want to guess what sign her husband is? Is he a Gemini? He sure is. Okay. Princess Grace's event was held November 15th, 1969. It was called the Fate des Scorpions. <laughs> this is going to be a fancy party. The party is held at Le Hermitage in Monte Carlo in the Bella Poke Hall, which was decorated with portraits of famous Scorpios, including Edgar Allan Poe, Queen Marie Antoinette, and Auguste Rodin. 60 guests will attend the lavish party. And I mention lavish here. Not a birthday party, really, without a cake. Princess Grace's High Scorpia cake is 166 pounds. It for, is to- for 60 guests? For 60 guests, 166 pounds. It's topped with a golden scorpion. But let me tell you, the cake is so large that it had to be cut in half to make it through the door of the Bella Poke room in order to be reassembled sure. for the guests to have at the party. So that each could have their two and a half pounds of cake. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Princess Grace will wear Balenciaga, a black velvet gown with ruby cabochon and diamond brooches. She has a matching ruby ring. She nails it. I mean, this is high Scorpio. It's her Scorpio majesty. She's looking great. It should be Princess Grace's night. And it probably was. (laughs) But come on. 
Elizabeth Taylor has already been mentioned way too much in this story already Mm -hmm. not to take down the trashy prize of the evening. Let's talk about She of the Violet Eyes, the Pisces that upstages Princess Grace at her own birthday party. Okay, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor famously begin their affair in 1962 on the set of Cleopatra and, oh my... The ups, the downs, the divorce, the remarriages, and all the jewels, too. The 2 p.m. Bloody Marys on set. You can make me a drink, Richard. He also really loved buying Elizabeth jewels. The bigger, the better. Could it be more extravagant? Perhaps. Introducing the Cartier Diamond, now known as the Taylor Burton Diamond. This is a huge stone, 69.42 carats. It was bought in 1969 by Richard Burton for Elizabeth Taylor. Purchased at Sotheby's for over a million dollars, but Cartier made a little bit of a bargain with the Taylor Burtons on this and said, hey, Richard, you can buy this diamond, but we would like to display it before it goes to Elizabeth. It is known as the Diamond as Big as the Ritz. And crowds, 6,000, 10,000 a day, come to see this diamond before it actually gets to Elizabeth Taylor. Wow. Crowds and crowds. So here is Elizabeth. Elizabeth Taylor shows up in black velvet. She has a black velvet cape decorated with diamond scorpions. That cape actually sold for $60,000 at an auction in 2011. Hmm. Like the clothes from this night are just phenomenal. And she's also got a mighty big rock. Well, she does have a mighty big rock. Elizabeth Taylor will premiere her Taylor Burton diamond at this party. It has been remounted into a necklace. It's the pendant hanging from a V-shaped necklace of pear-shaped pearls, all mounted in platinum. And honestly, Elizabeth Taylor wore the Krupp diamond on her hand in a ring. That is, mm, if I'm remembering, like 34, 35 carats. That's a pretty big stone. The Taylor Burton diamond is twice the size of that, way too large to wear on her hand. So the diamond, as big as the Ritz, goes around her fair neck. Let me tell you about this Taylor Burton diamond. It has its own security team for the party. I was wondering. It seems like a, a lot of rock to be carrying around. The diamond is flown from New York to Nice with two armed security guards who deliver it to Richard and Elizabeth uh, on board their yacht named the Calisma. The Calisma is actually a new name. It was recommissioned when the Burtons bought it. The Calisma... And how they got that name, it was named for Elizabeth and Richard's three daughters, Kate, Liza, and Marie. Okay. The yacht had a whole history before that kind of fascinating, not today's story. So here we have armed security guards delivering the diamond. They will not only deliver the diamond to the Taylor Burtons on board the Calisma, they will accompany the couple with guns to the party. No one's taking any chances with this necklace. And certainly, it was a party. Elizabeth Taylor shines per use, almost, almost, probably even upstaging the high Scorpia birthday girl herself. Princess Grace will write her friend Judy Balaban Quinn about the party, saying she found it hard to take her eyes off of Elizabeth, who Grace considered to be quote-unquote unbearably beautiful. Princess Grace is enchanted by Elizabeth Taylor, but come on, who isn't? That Taylor Burton diamond premiering at Princess Grace's party was sold by Elizabeth Taylor after her second divorce from Richard Burton. Nice tidy profit. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor sold the diamond for $5 million or so and pledged to use that money to build a hospital in Botswana, which she does even though I believe a storm has taken that hospital away Hmm. in current day. The day after, Princess Grace's fate de scorpions, all the guests were invited to have breakfast at the swimming pool of the Hotel de Paris next door. They all stayed at the Hotel de Mm -hmm. Paris overnight. Oh, what a night. Oh, what a party. I mean, that's a flex, Grace, and I am in for it. (laughs) 
And perhaps after that blowout, it might be the last birthday, I would admit, either. Mm -hmm. Oh, the Grimaldi family and the ethereal and eternal Princess Grace. I love that story. As it comes to trashy crowns for this one, I feel like the majority of them belong with Frankie the Spiteful. Maybe be real careful about the curses that you inspire yeah. that leave long legacies, oh, Frankie. Yes. Very long. To this very day, I'm sure we will get to that in a future Trashy Royals episode. Well, that's it. More stories about these royals will be coming your way, but this week it was just too good not to fit this part into our journey in Trashy Royals exactly here. I know there was a lot packed into that journey. Thank you for accompanying us to the Mediterranean today in a little sidetrack to Monaco. Sure. And I think Elizabeth Taylor deserves an honorary royal title. Uh, she's got one in her own brain, I'm sure. Yeah. She's yeah. a goddess. Yeah. She really, really is. Oh, one of many stories. I love this Trashy Royals journey. We really love y'all. Thank you for spending your time with us today. We can't tell you how much we appreciate you and you telling your friends and your kind ratings and reviews and all that other good glorious stuff. <laughs> We're going to be back next Thursday with a whole new tale of trashy. Until then, I want you to keep your eye on the throne. Polish up that crown, friends. Keep your eye on your trashy jewels, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe be real careful about what party you invite Elizabeth <laughs> Taylor to. <laughs> Big love, everybody. Have a terrific week. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.